Hey everybody, this is David Dwight, Senior Pastor at Hope Church RVA, and you're listening to the Hope Sermons Podcast. I'm excited about our current series called More Than Words, a 90-day overview of the entire Bible. Thanks for joining us as we learn more about God, ourselves, and how He's redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. Hey, welcome to Hope. So glad you're here, and particularly if you're new with us at Hope, if this may be your first time being here, we're really glad you're here, and we hope you're encouraged by being with us. So Wes mentioned uh, the situation in the Ukraine. We will be sending some uh, relief funds to partners in Eastern Europe, missionary partners with whom we work and do ministry in Eastern Europe this week. And those funds will be primarily allocated to provide assistance for refugees, to provide food, water, and other refugee needs for people who are fleeing the uh, invasion uh, of the Russians into the Ukraine. So I don't know about you, uh, I find myself disturbed, churned, about what we're seeing in the world. I think I'm like many of us, thought didn't think we would see this kind of thing happen in Europe or in places like this. So anyway, I'd like to invite you to join me and let's unite our hearts to pray together for a moment. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when war is mounting, we are disturbed, And we are reminded that we're small and it feels big. And so we bring our hearts and our perspectives into the haven of your bigness, the only one big enough to be bigger than all of it. And Lord, we come into your presence this morning and as your church, we unite with believers all around the world. And we pray that you would be moving and working to bring peace in the Ukraine. We pray, Lord, that you would bring light over darkness and good over evil and truth over falsehood. We pray for the protection of the innocent. We pray, Lord, for righteousness and peace and justice and resolve. And we know it's a big, complicated world, Lord. You know all these things that we don't. We pray that you would bring the forces of good over the forces of darkness. We pray that you would provide relief, refuge, and haven. We pray for your church, that your church would find unity and express the healing and the relief and the love of Christ to people in need, and that from afar, we also, as part of the body of Christ around the world, might be a part of this. And so, Lord, we ask you to intervene. We ask you to move, and we give you our hearts, our thoughts, our reflections, our feelings. We place them with you, the only one big enough for all of this. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so I ordered three books from Amazon this week. That's pretty normal. But let me tell you what the books are. The first one early in the week was called The Hope of the Gospel. And then a day later, I ordered Peter Crape's book, The God Who Loves You. And then a day later... I began thinking about how this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday and Lent is beginning. So I ordered a book called Bread and Wine, which is Lenten readings that carry us through the the season of Lent. So hold that thought. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Sometimes people say that the art of giving good counsel 
is to be a sounding board so that you maybe just offer the right kinds of questions so a person in need can make their own discoveries and discover their own truth and thereby kind of take their learning as their own discovery. Sometimes, the school of thought goes, people learn more when it's their own discovery than when somebody else sort of tells them what's going on and maybe what needs to be done. And I can appreciate all of that, and I think there's an important place for that. But I also think there are times in life where we want to say, just tell me. And so we have both of these in play, depending on the context and what the situation may be. So I'm not as much a counselor as I am a preacher. Both are sympathetic to our human condition, but the latter leans a little bit more toward the prophetic. So I'm going to tell you what your problem is. It's my problem too. You don't trust God's love. That's your problem. It's our problem. That's why you wander in loneliness away from him. It's why you protest and argue with him. It's why we look for love and good feels in all the wrong places. It's why your grief feels more like a black hole than a door to redeeming love. And this may all start at a very foundational level, the fact that you've chosen not to believe that God exists at all, you wouldn't or you couldn't embrace love from something or someone you don't believe exists. You've bitten on the worn tropes of secularism that say a smart person can't really believe in God. Thankfully, with the Holy Spirit's help a number of decades ago, I got over that deception. Remember, if you were able to join us last week, whatever form, in person or online, that sin has one goal. And that one goal is to keep you from God's love. So if you get through its first line falsities and obfuscations to actually believe in God, having lost that battle, sin will bend over backwards to contort your view of God, make you think of him as cold or distant, make you think of him as uncaring or just simply not personal, a God thing, a God object, not a God person. Or make him, in your mind, a harsh taskmaster so you'll keep your distance and won't get close to his heart. Whatever distortion of God or yourself is necessary to keep you from his love. So we bumble along with religion and obligation and well-worn habits that only groove the errors into a deeper rut into which everything in our religious lives begins to be shaped. Our thoughts, our views of God empty obligatory prayers. Yes, your problem, your problem is that you don't trust God's love. It's my problem too. You are Israel. We're all Israel. What does God have to do with this dilemma? I mean, in the truest, holiest, most sacred way you can say it, for God's sake, in the true sense of the phrase, what does he have to do to convince us of his love? Do you have to die for us? In Jeremiah 31, we read this from the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. Okay, so before we go deep into the Jeremiah text, I think it's worth noting that I I believe it's a common human experience for almost all of us in various ways that we feel misunderstood. We all have our own personality. We have our own experiences. It makes the unique recipe of who you are. And of course, it means that we're all different. And I think it means at a certain level, part of the human experience is that we feel to some degree misunderstood. Maybe people don't understand our personality. Maybe they don't trust our intentions. But I think if we feel this, God feels this, a million times more than we do. That we don't understand his intentions, that we don't receive his directives in our life as expressions of his love, that we would know life, life to the full, to the fullest, flourishing. We tend to assume other things of God. So, you know, A lot of times when I wrap up a service on Sundays, I close with a benediction. It comes out of Romans 15, 13. And I say, in whatever circumstance, those that are happy and hard, the Holy Spirit is whispering to you, come closer to your Father in heaven. And then I use this phrase, because he loves you beyond your wildest dreams. And maybe you hear that, and I don't know if it strikes you. Sometimes when we hear things repeatedly, they can begin to fall on deaf ears because They're too familiar, but the phrase, he loves us beyond our wildest dreams, you might think, oh, that's kind of nice, it's poetic, it's cute. I don't mean it to be nice or poetic or cute. I mean it to be something that stretches our understanding and our experience into God's love so that we would begin to realize that his love for us is beyond anything we've ever imagined. In the opening chapter of Jeremiah, God introduces the conversation with Jeremiah by telling Jeremiah how he's known him from all time. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. One of the reasons his love is beyond our wildest dreams is because It's in many ways got conceptual realities to it that we never imagined. We never thought about. Such a thought just never occurred to us. For instance, God is saying to Jeremiah, before you were conceived, I knew you. In other words, God knew us from the beginning of time. Now we measure time in years, but God is eternally outside of time. But Henry Nouwen says it this way. He says, your bodily life, yourself, may not have always lived, but your being always has lived because God has had you in his heart for all time. All of his existence brings your being and yourself to spend eternity in his love. Okay, so you might be thinking, ah, that's a little heavy. Can you kind of bring us back to earth? Here's here's the understanding. Most of us, when we envision our lives, we think of our lifespan, whatever it's going to be, 80, 90 years, let's call it. 
And when you envision your relationship with God, you think about how you navigated your life with him. And you think about when you get to heaven, you want to talk to him about various things that happened in your 80 or 90 years. And God will say, what do you mean 80 or 90 years? We'll say, yeah, my 80 or 90 years, whatever it is. God will say, no, 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 forever. And we'll say, what do you mean forever? He'll say, you've, you've been alive forever. No, I haven't. I lived 80 or 90 years. I was born in 1980 and I lived for X number of years. No, no, you've been, you've been alive forever. No, God, really, I have not been alive forever. No, yes, really, you have been alive forever. You have always been in my heart. So God might say to us, I know it's hard for you because you only understand time and years. But what I'm trying to tell you is you've always existed for millions and millions of years because you existed in my heart, because I had my heart and my love set upon you. And we started thinking, never has such a thought crossed my mind. That the magnitude of his love is so far beyond any categories or any ways that we ever imagined this is what it means when we say that he loves us beyond our wildest dreams. And that's just one of innumerable examples. The Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. What I love about that is it's like, I dare you to try to conceive as much as you can conceive and then keep coming back to the statement. No matter how much you conceive, nobody has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's love beyond your wildest dreams. But go ahead and dream wild dreams is what Paul is saying. And then realize that his love far exceeds anything you could ever imagine. But many of us struggle to believe that God is actually for us. We sort of think that he's like playing us like a puppet and he's kind of managing our lives. And we interpret God based on how our circumstances are going. So if we have a good day, God likes us. If we have a bad day, God doesn't like us. And we're on this roller coaster that keeps us from really experiencing his love. In Romans chapter eight, though, Paul wants us to be sure of his love. And he says, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's using the word if the way we would use it as since. He's saying, since God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, since God is for us, that is the settled center reality of our lives. So no matter what happens to you, interpret it around this core. God is for you. Now that'll stretch some of us into mysterious places. Of course, this is why it's called a life of faith. Okay, so in the Bible, as we follow God and his relationship with his people, Israel, and then into the New Testament, which we'll come to, of course, in a while, God gives two primary relational pictures of what his relationship with his people is like. And you gotta be able to kind of hold both of them in cooperative understanding. I think you can do that. One of those pictures is a child. He calls Israel the children of God. In Christ, he calls us his children. So one of these pictures is the child-parent picture. The other one is the picture of a spouse, a spousal relationship. He says in verse 33, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So two things are going on here. One of them is the relationship of a child. And what God wants us to know in that dynamic is that we have the full security and the protection and the love of God as our father in heaven. It's that smallness of the child to the bigness of the father's love and protection that he wants us to know and understand and feel. But most of us, as we began to outgrow childhood and began to get a little bit older, 
we began to sort of test our parents' love. We began to behave in certain ways that sort of were love testing our parents. Now, we may or may not have known it. We may or may not have actually been able to articulate, hey, mom, dad, my behavior on Friday night, I just want you to know in advance, I'm going to test your love. And on Saturday morning, I want to see if you still love me. Most of us never said that, but that unspoken dynamic is in play. There's a lot of love testing going on, and this is called teenagerhood. (laughs) And I did it a lot to my parents. So when you're a child, right, and you're growing up in your house, the main dynamic is authority. Your parents are the authority over you. So your parents are giving you directives or maybe rules. In our family, this is how we behave. And you're given rules. Some families will like, say, family rules. They'll have it like on the kitchen or they'll have something on the fridge. This is how it works in our family. This is how you behave in our family. In other words, the rules are posted so you can refer to them to follow them. In a sense, this is what God is saying about Israel. This is what the Ten Commandments are. The rules are posted so you can follow them. But the idea when we're a child in the posting of the rules is that there would come a time where we would mature so we no longer have to refer to the posting of the rules. That our behaviors become expressions of matured hearts that love the family so that our behavior contributes into this love and this relational richness. In other words, if you're like 30 and your parents are still telling you the rules, something hasn't happened that's supposed to happen. This is what's happening with Israel. Something hasn't happened that's supposed to happen. They're not growing into receiving this love. And so they're interacting with God in a way that's rules-based behavior, but the heart isn't growing into the mature relationship that is more resembling a spousal relationship. So now God says, as I was a husband to them, but they're behaving like obligatory spouses. Here's the story of the Bible. God has chosen a wounded woman to be his spouse. The wounded woman is Israel. The wounded person is us. And wounded people will test love. Wounded people have their own internal stuff they're trying to work out and work through. Wounded people will often find it very difficult to receive love, to trust love. But because God's a redeemer, he chooses the wounded to love. And so God says, though I was a husband to them. But many of us won't or can't trust this real love. When we've been wounded, when we've lived in sin's voices, the voices of mistreatment or abuse, Those voices, whenever we begin to get closer to God's love, will suck us back into the hole and say, you can't live without me. And we tend to get drawn back into the dysfunctional places. We begin to make some progress to trust and to grow into God's love, but then we return to our fears. We wander back to the false loves, which diminish our dignity. All the while, God wanting us to grow into the fullness of flourishing in his love. So 
what we're being told is that the relationship is going to go from external to internal. This is what Jeremiah says. He says, This covenant I will make with the people of Israel, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's no longer going to be written on tablets of stone. If you know the scriptures, this is like the Ten Commandments. In other words, our relating with God will no longer require a rule book because our hearts have grown into this maturing love where our natural desire is a loving relationship with him. But for most of us, we really have had a hard time trusting his love. So the idea is that the relationship would grow from an externality to an internal reality in a maturing love. Note that God says, though I was a husband to them, they broke my covenant. He says, it won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. You know what that covenant is? That's the Passover. That's when God rescues his people, Israel, from the Egyptian captivity. It is, in a sense, the wedding. It's when God fully calls forth his beloved and he redeems her from captivity and calls her and sets her free into his love. The idea being that we would flourish in that love with him. The Passover is Israel's wedding anniversary with God. And this is why God tells Israel throughout, observe this every year. Enter into this celebration every year. Bring your heart into it as a beautiful expression of the love relationship that we have. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. Israel would practice the Passover, but they did it not because they wanted to, because they felt like it was an obligation, like they had to. It would be like if you're married... It would be like giving your spouse an anniversary present and saying, I got you this anniversary present because I had to. And guess what I also want to tell you? I've been faithful to you. I haven't slept with anyone else because I'm not allowed to. You would be really confused by that sentiment. You would be really confused by the lack of heart that's expressed in the loyalty. You would be really confused by the lack of love that's expressed in the behavior. And this, in a sense, is what's happened with Israel. So really what's happening by the time Jeremiah comes on the scene is God says to Israel, this relationship isn't working. It's just not working. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a committed relationship or a marriage when you come to a crisis crossroads where you realize it's not working, we have to do something about it. And you know that this is going to end up going in one of two directions. Either we're going to part ways or we're going to enter the harder work places to try to find reconciliation and new beginnings. And so Isaiah says the days are coming, excuse me, Jeremiah says the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel. If you read that and you were Jewish, you'd say, when are the days coming? What are the days going to look like? How do I know when the days are going to be here? Is it possible that I could miss these days? I don't want to miss these days. What are these days going to look like? When is that time fully going to come? And then Galatians 4 says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. 
You see, the relationship isn't working because it's not love if your heart's not in it. And God realizes that their heart isn't in it. They're giving them anniversary presents, not because they want to, but because they feel like they have to. And because God is love, he's the one who identifies the reality that the relationship isn't working. It's a big moment if you've ever been in one of those moments. It's a pivotal moment. And so God says, a new covenant I'll make with my people. In other words, we're going to have to start this thing all over. It's going to have to be premised in a completely different way. It needs a new beginning, a new foundation, and a new vision. And he will be the one to take it upon himself to do that. Now, in this relationship, the picture of the scriptures is that God is the loving spouse and the betrayed party. So this morning, you know, I'm up early and I'm shaving, getting ready to come over. And I thought, this is an unfortunate truth. A person who has experienced betrayal in a relationship or experienced adultery is going to understand this sermon more than anybody else. This is the heart of God who so deeply longs to experience the giving of his love with us. And the way this whole new covenant is going to work is God will bear the brunt of our untrusting hearts. God will pay the price for reconciliation. The days are coming, says the Lord. Someday at the right time, God will address this broken relationship for good. And in verse 34, we get the premise of what it's going to look like. He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. Okay, now some of you are Christians. You've been in church for a while. You thought, this is how God's going to make the new covenant. He's going to do this thing, and then I'm going to get my act together, and I'm going to start being a good Christian. And the foundation of my relationship with him is that I'm going to be a good Christian. That is not what it says. What it says is the foundation of our relationship is that God is going to pay the price, take the brunt, and offer us a complete forgiveness. And from there, we stand in that standing of forgiveness and have this relationship with him where he has flung open the gates of his heart and paid the price so our relationship could be started in a whole new way. The idea would be that once we began to catch a glimpse of what he's done, that our hearts would begin to feel grateful, that our hearts would begin to have a sense of this incredible personal love And that our lives would begin to move from obligations to a deep natural desire to love him with the way that we live. That it's moved from obligation to gratitude. A new covenant is coming, says Jeremiah. A new covenant that God will make with his people Israel. So it's no mistake, friends, that it was the Passover meal. Israel's wedding anniversary with God when Jesus sat with the disciples And in Matthew 26, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant that is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what do we have to do to really begin to move into this relationship? I think one, it's like the precursor. God has to become real to us, a person, not a thing, but God is personal, that he's a person, he's got a heartbeat and that he longs for this love. Next, I think we recognize that we have not been trusting his love and in our sin, we've been turning away from him and it's breaking his heart. Next, we truly apologize and repent of our self-centered living and the way we've turned away. And then we say yes at the heart level, inviting him in. 
Charles Feinberg says, the old covenant spoke of a great physical deliverance from Egypt through the blood of lambs and the power of God. The new covenant proclaims a great spiritual deliverance from sin and death through the blood of the Lamb of God and the power of God. The Passover feast memorialized the first. The Lord's Supper communion memorializes the second. So I think I mentioned to you that I ordered three books this week. So on Wednesday, my Alexa had the yellow light spinning. That means there's a message. So I said, Alexa, play notifications. And Alexa said, the hope of the gospel has arrived. On Thursday, the yellow light was spinning again, and I said, Alexa, play notifications. And she said, the God who loves you has arrived. (laughs) And then on Friday, mind you, I've got all this scripture in my head when Alexa's talking to me. The yellow light is spinning, and I said, Alexa, play notifications. And she said, bread and wine has arrived. The hope of the gospel has arrived. The God who loves you has arrived. Bread and wine has arrived. A new covenant I will make with my people, Israel, says the Lord. And Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. So coming to the communion experience, a few words about this before we open pods and move into it. Again, you see the richness that it was the Passover meal when Jesus was with the disciples. This is Israel's anniversary with God. And at the Passover meal, after giving thanks, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup from that Passover table and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant that Jeremiah had spoken about so many centuries ago. And it is now shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So now we begin to see that this is moving from external to internal. There's no mistaking that this sacramental experience with him is when we actually take the elements inside of us. And when we do this, we are saying by faith to Jesus Christ, I want you to be alive in me. So if you don't have one of the pods, you'd like one, just raise your hand so folks can know where you are and we can get them to you. But you understand that this new covenant that Jeremiah was promising is the new covenant that Jesus is talking about. And the way this forgiveness would happen is that he would take the brunt of it and he would lay down his life for our betrayal on the prospect of a reconciled relationship with God. So maybe you're here and you know that you want that relationship and you want to make it clear for the first time in your life. And if that's true for you, I would encourage you before you take the elements to pray a simple prayer and say, God, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And I invite your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And now Christ, I invite you into my life as Lord and Savior. It's a simple prayer, but if you say it, you mean it. It's the beginning of this life with God. So if you have the pods, these tricky little guys, you take the first top bit of cellophane off and you'll find a communion wafer underneath that. Just hold the wafer for a moment and then you can peel the foil back. Do it carefully because if you shake it, 
It's going to go in your lap. The beauty of communion in this format, even though it's a little mechanical, is that as the body of Christ, we all express this faith simultaneously. So friends, this is the body of Jesus Christ broken for you. And this is the new covenant in his blood, which is shed for you. Amen.